Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by J. Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode. Do you know where you want your assets to go when you die? To whom? And the best, most efficient, least costly, lowest tax way to get them there. Our host, J. Barry Watts, is going to take the mystery out of estate planning today on The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. I'm Barry Watts, your host. And today I'm going to talk about one of the topics that clients most frequently want to discuss when they come to my office. It's the topic of estate planning. And when we get done today, hopefully you're going to understand why you have to take action now while you are living and have mental capacity and what actions you should consider taking in order to make sure that your estate goes to who you want, when you want, in the way you want as we dive into our topic, taking the mystery out of estate planning. Barry, I am really impressed. Where did you go to law school? Well, why do you ask? Well, it's estate planning, right? Don't lawyers do that? Well, lawyers do do estate planning. And the answer to your question is I walked through the hallowed halls of Tate Hall, where the law school was housed (laughs) on the campus at Mizzou, the University of Missouri, when I was a student there nearly 40 years ago. I think the uh, law school is now in Halston Hall. They built a new one about 30 years ago. But just to make sure the record is straight here, Patrice, (laughs) I never went to law school and I'm not a lawyer in that is precisely what qualifies me to speak on this podcast about this topic. Well, well, well. Okay, explain, explain. Well, it's simply this: because I didn't go to law school, I don't speak lawyerese. Got For it. example. I'll read estate planning documents, and they'll have distribution instructions that say the estate is to be distributed per capita or per stirpes. Mm-hmm, yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> those, those are Latin words. When's the last time you spoke any Latin? You know, Latin began to die out when Rome fell. That was in 476 AD for well over a thousand years. Nobody has really used Latin outside the Catholic Church and the law schools. And even the Catholics figured out that Latin wasn't working for modern English speakers in the early 60s. And that's when the Pope decreed that English was acceptable for mass in Vatican II. So about the only two places I ever see Latin used these days are in legal documents and a little bit in medical writing. So uh, Latin is uh, uh, confusing to most people, and I don't speak it. I just speak English and a hillbilly version of that. And as a result, most people can better understand as we explain to them how estate planning works. So if you'll think about it, the the times that most people get confused most easily are when they're talking with their lawyers and their doctors. And so when they meet with their lawyers and their doctors, often they'll bring their documents to me. Well, not their doctors so much. I don't I don't do that. <laughs> but after they meet with their lawyers, they'll bring their documents to me and they'll say, what did he say? I didn't understand a word he said. I don't know what these mean. Now, I have to be fair, Patrice, and tell you that younger lawyers are getting better at communicating in plain English. But there's still a lot of confusion uh, surrounding this idea about estate planning. All right. I'll give you maybe this part of the Latin, but 
I have a think. Uh, do you think there's such a a hard topic though? It's people can't get their minds around this, or are they afraid of it? Well, I think you're right on the second idea there. It's it's an uncomfortable topic because when grandma and grandpa uh, or mom and dad die, there's a bit of a land rush often by the heirs to grab hold of stuff. And sometimes it can create tension between siblings. And maybe there was already tension, and this is just the opportunity mm. or excuse for that tension to flare up. Or maybe there's a nutty, greedy outlaw. All the kids are fine, but one of them's married to somebody who's kind of a numbskull, and that person interjects themselves in the process. And so people anticipate that this is going to be difficult, and it's surrounded by the loss of the parent or grandparent anyway. Yeah. And so kind of a uh, topic we don't really want to go to. And then it really deals with the whole issue of dying. And in America, billions of dollars are made marketing products that are theoretically going to keep you perpetually youthful and vigorous. Nobody wants to talk about dying. It's become an even more uncomfortable topic as we've moved away from our spiritual roots, um, understanding who God is and that he's in charge and that someday we're going to have to answer to him. People are drifting. And that creates a sense of spiritual unrest with the eventuality of death, which in turn creates emotional unrest. And so the easy thing to do is just sweep it under the rug and not deal with it. In fact, it's a little bit off topic, but it goes to the question that you brought up. I read a really interesting book, Patrice. Mm, yes. it, it was written by an undertaker. Okay. And if I recall, he was his, his uh, funeral home was in southern Indiana, I think. And uh, my wife makes fun of me. Nobody understands why this is an interesting topic to me, and I'll explain it perhaps in just a moment. But what he said in the topic, the one, the one sentence rather in the book that captured me, is he said, the reason that people don't deal with death is because of the invention of the flush toilet. All right. I'm not well, sure I see the connection. His whole idea was we just punch a button and everything that's unpleasant goes away. Oh. And, you know, in the old it days, I mean, I, I, you grew up in an urban setting, I believe. Yes. I grew up in a rural setting, so I've used many an outhouse, and they're not very pleasant places to get your business done. And in the old days, not only did you use the outhouse, but you saw grandma or grandpa die right there in the house, right. in the bed that you knew you were going to sleep in that night, perhaps. And uh, they were their body was prepared in the kitchen on the table. And they were uh, laid out then in the house for a couple of days before they were taken and buried. And so, so you lived it out, you mm -hmm. experienced it. And, you know, we don't do that today. We sweep everybody off to the hospital to die and then their bodies handled and prepared at the funeral home. And we go and visit the funeral home for an uncomfortable mm -hmm. hour mm -hmm. or so. And so his whole notion was the invention of the flush toilet caused us to develop, uh, to realize that unpleasantness could be made to go away. And one of the unpleasantnesses is dying. And one of the unpleasantnesses that is produced by dying is having to deal with the estate. So that's a roundabout way of saying that's really, really funny. And I'll just I'll slip this little tidbit in about why that book meant something to me. I'll just tell you this, Patrice, when I was 16 years old, I had my first kiss on the front steps of the funeral home. So, oh, that's so I, romantic, Barry. Well, you know, I dated the funeral director's daughter is what <laughs> the right. deal was.
And uh, so, so I grew up a little bit around that. And oftentimes when he needed to help her a little muscle, sure. he would uh, call the boyfriend in and say, Hey, help me lift this guy. And so I did a lot of that when I was a teenager, it made me more comfortable with the topic. And I think it makes me actually more effective as a human being today, helping people navigate through the different things that, that, that are unpleasant to them. One of which is estate planning. Well, you know, I read an interesting stat lately. You talk about a book. I'll talk about a stat. One out of every one people are going to die. And what is that? You know, my math ain't great, but that is 100%. And you're right. In today's society, it's a sterile thing. We don't see it happen. We don't deal with it. We see before and we see after. We don't see it. You know, that's why I think it's important to face these things. Yeah. Uh, again, slightly off topic, but my life's just full of these experiences. When I was a teenager, trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself, my mother knew that there was this thing in town called Medical Explorers. And so I actually drove 40 miles to the local, the closest hospital uh, as a teenager. I was just 16 years old and would go into the hospital into this. It was actually affiliated with the Boy Scouts, though I wasn't a Boy Scout. And the Medical Explorers, they just took you around the hospital. You followed somebody around and saw what was going on. I remember one of the first people I followed was a phlebotomist. He's drawing blood mm -hmm. on people and he's explaining to me, blood gases. You know, and I'm 16. I'm like, what the heck is a blood gas? I didn't know that existed. And we were in every room with old people, young people. I remember being in one room where the obstetrician mistook me for the father. And he started speaking to me about the baby, my baby, which is going to come. And I'm like, hey, dude, I'm just following this guy around. While I'm he's only blood. 16, I'm man. That's exactly right. But I also remember I remember being in a unit where they had ventilators, and yeah. those are what I would guess have been early model ventilators. I remember them telling me, this lady is going to die here. We're going to shut the ventilator off. And they they set me there and left me there, and I think that they were wise enough to know that I needed to watch that process. And I remember being kind of scared, kind of tense about that, but we stood there, and they shut the ventilator off, and indeed, the lady died. So, again, that's another thing that has equipped me uh, to help people deal with these unpleasantnesses. And it's why we address this topic, because you're going to have to deal with it at some point. And information and preparation can help you resolve some of the anxiety. So I want to start today, Patrice, by talking about what happens to your assets when you die. Okay, will mm -hmm. that be all right? Absolutely. Go for it. All right. So here's what we do when you die. There has to be a mechanism a legal mechanism to give your assets away. Who gets your house, your farm, your teacup and shotgun collection, the tools in your garage, the family Bible, the money in the bank, your IRA, your 401k. There has to be a mechanism or a plan for giving those assets away. And if you don't have a plan, the state that you live in will have a plan for you. Mm -hmm. Each state has their own statutes and their laws, and they prescribe what is to be done with your assets if you haven't pre-planned what is to happen to them. Which brings me to this simple question. Do you really trust the people in the state capitol to do with your assets what you would want done with them? I think I want my teacup collection to go to somebody else. Yeah, I don't. Those guys don't <laughs> seem to do very good at making laws about I don't know no, stop no. signs and roads and so forth. Oh, they don't have any business in your family's personal life. They do not. But there are statutes written by these people, men and women who are in the legislature, uh, like Eric, our our often co-host, is in the legislature. These statutes are written by them to direct what happens if you die and you haven't left any instructions. Now, those instructions would normally be in the form of a will, and everybody's kind of familiar with a will. 
And in Missouri, uh, it, there are instructions if you die without a will. Now, dying without a will is called dying intestate. And so when you're talking to lawyers, they'll say, well, if you die intestate, and what in the <laughs> world is intestate? It sounds like a painful disease for men. It does. Um, intestate is an English transliteration of a Latin word, intestatus. How'd you like that? You didn't know I could speak Latin, did you? Did you notice that special hillbilly accent on the Latin? Intestatus. It's an English transliteration of intestatus, which means dying without a will. So the whole point is, why don't the lawyers just say dying without a will? But no, they say you're dying intestate. So in Missouri, the state that I live in and where we're broadcasting from today, if you die intestate without a will, here's what happens. The first $20,000 goes to your spouse. Okay. Then your estate gets split in half and 50% of it goes to your spouse and 50% of it gets divided among your kids. So here's the question. Do you want the estate to go to the kids before your spouse dies? Because if half of it gets carved off to your children, it, that could leave your wife, I'll assume the husband died first, it could leave your wife really hungry and without the assets she needs. Most people say, oh, I didn't want it to go to the kids until after my wife and I are both gone. I'm surprised it doesn't go to the, the spouse, the surviving spouse. That's not the way the statute is written. And I don't know the history behind all of that, but I'm just telling you half okay. of it goes to the spouse, half of it goes to the kids. Okay. And so we probably want the kids to receive it, just maybe not that fast. And that's why it's important to have a plan written out and establishing what is to happen. And in that plan, one of the things that you will establish is who should inherit your assets. For most people, it's the surviving spouse first and then their kids. Right. But there are exceptions. For example, people have a bad kid sometimes or an estranged but not divorced spouse that they want the assets not to go to, or a favorite niece, or a charity that they want to fund. But 85% of the time, I'd say people just want it to go to the spouse and then to their kids. So here's the next question, Patrice. Should all of your children share equally? Uh, well, now that's in my case, I would say yes. But I'm sure there are cases out there where it's not necessarily. Well, I'm going to guess that when, when it, people don't share equally, I think that makes them feel guilty. Mm -hmm. So let me offer you a thought. There is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. You're using math on me again, aren't you? <laughs> there is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. And that is a beautiful statement. Yes. Well, if you think about it, it really kind of shocks you into a yes. new set of thoughts. Some people have very equal children. And so it makes sense to just split it in half. And one of them goes to Johnny and one of them goes to Sally and we're all done. But other people who have children who are in very different places and they don't necessarily have to be bad places. They're just different. Let's say your daughter is a neurosurgeon. She probably is on good footing financially. And let's say your son is a public school teacher with a special needs child. Well, I'm just guessing that the son may have financial needs that your daughter will never have. So they are unequal. You love them equally. You care for them equally. And because you love them, you realize that it might be appropriate to treat them differently, to give more to the needy son and his special needs child, your grandchild, than it is mm -hmm. to give it to the well-established neurosurgeon daughter who doesn't need any of it, really. 
So parents have trouble with this because they feel duty bound to treat each child equally down to the penny. My wife is this way at Christmas time. Don't tell her I talked about her on the (laughs) podcast. I'm sure she'll never listen. So she probably won't hear about it. But if she spends a dollar on one of my daughters at Christmas, she feels she has to spend a dollar on the other one and she has to even it out. And I see her working to even it out. And I'm like, get over it. I just want them to have something cool that they're really going to enjoy. And if one of them costs more than the other, well, that's okay. It's all going to work out for the most part in the end. It's the gift and the pleasure that it creates that counts, not the pennies. Now, Kelly doesn't agree with me on that necessarily. She just feels duty bound to this equal thing. I can understand. So, I can understand. I think it's, a, that, it's an important it's point. Legit. Here, here's the deal. Since there is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals, at this moment in time, Patrice, everybody check your watch now mm-hmm. and note what date it is on the calendar. Okay? So check your watch and note the date on the calendar. Mm-hmm. On this date at this time, I hereby give you permission to treat your children unequally. Do I have to tell them? No. (laughs) They'll figure it out. (laughs) But it might be good to tell them. It might be good to sit down with the one who's getting less and say, you know, you're doing so well, and I'm so proud of you for doing well. And I'm amazed at at, uh, what you've managed to put together and accomplish. And, you know, your brother is doing well, too, at what he does. But since he chose to be a public school teacher, he's not making the money you are as a neurosurgeon. And then, you know, he had little Sally and bless her heart. She's never going to be able to function like your kids are functioning and she's going to have to be cared for. So I just want you to know I'm going to split the estate uh, so that little Sally is taken care of and your brother has the resources to do it. And I just want you to know when I do that, it it isn't a, a reflection of my love more for him than for you. It's just realizing wh- who needs to be taken care of. And if you've raised the right kind of kids, they're going to nod their head and understand it. Yes. Yes. So, so the next thing to think about, though, on this topic is, well, should you include your grandchildren as beneficiaries? Now, here's a, this is a very personal topic to me, and here's why. My brother and I both work in the financial industry, and we're both doing very well. Our parents are in their 70s with potentially a 20-year lifespan remaining. And so mom and dad set things up years ago to go to me and to my brother equally. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, they changed their mind. They said, hey, we want to divide our estate three ways. You get a third. Your brother gets a third. And previously, you know, we'd both gotten a half, but they said, you're going to get a third. Your brother's going to get a third. And then we want the other third to be split up among the grandchildren while they are still young enough to benefit from the money. And then they went on Mm. to talk about what a difference it had made for them when my grandpa Jake, that is my dad's dad, had given them a farm when they were in their 30s. And from that farm, they got their start dairy farming. And from that, they were able to, for the first time in their life, begin putting a little money together. And so getting that portion of their inheritance in their 30s when they could still use it uh, really was helpful to them. And by the way, I'll just point out, it's also a biblical concept. That's the way it's taught in the Bible is that you give your, your inheritance to the kids while you're still there to help them manage the inheritance. So, you know, you may want to consider whether the grandkids should get a part of the assets upon your death. I think it can be a very good idea. Now, the next question that comes up is, okay, well, what assets should everybody inherit? Now, if most of your assets are financial, it's easy. You just do the math and split the account in half, and or if there's two kids or in mm-hmm. thirds, if there's three kids, and, and you're just done. You just divvy it up and hand them the money and away they go. But what if you have a business? 
What's that business really worth? How do we figure that out? Or what if you have real estate or a farm? Well, in addition to financial assets, then you may want to think long and hard about who gets what assets. Are you going to split the business two or three ways? Are you going to split the farm two or three ways? Here's an example. Maybe they don't want the business. Maybe they don't want the farm. And the other one may want it badly, but mom and dad are being fair. We're going to divide it equally among them. Well, no, what you did is just set up a problem. Yeah. You set up something for them to fight about. So, so I would encourage you to get the fight over early by laying down the law and saying, thus it shall be. And let mom and dad be the ones who say what's going to happen. And then when it does happen, well, you're dead. What are they going to do? You know, I mean, (laughs) at at that point, it just doesn't matter because you have declared what shall happen. So for example, let's say you own rental houses and let's say your son lives near you in the same city where the rental houses are located. And maybe he has a few houses himself and he takes care of them. And you kind of taught him to do that because you take care of them. You keep them rented and maintained and so forth. And let's say you've got a daughter who lives a thousand miles away. Well, when you die, do you want to give those houses equally to your son who's local and the daughter that's a thousand miles away? Or maybe it would be fairer to give the houses to your son and an equal amount of cash to your daughter. And that way your son isn't left managing, maintaining and repairing houses, half of which belong to your uninvolved daughter. Yes. So you just have to think about these things. And again, I've already given you permission to treat them differently differently. See, you could, in that case, you could still treat them equally, but just differently. One of them got money, one of them got houses. Or maybe you own a business and one child has worked in the business, been involved in the business and the others aren't. Well, it's not fair to leave the business to each child equally when one child has spent 20 years building that business alongside you. So you need to give some thought to what assets each of the children should should inherit. And that needs to be written down. It needs to be codified in your estate plan, I'm sorry if codified was sort of a legal term. That, that's also it needs Latin, to be isn't it? written yeah. down. Yeah, I think it is Latin now <laughs> yes, that you bring is, it up. It oh, evidently I do speak Latin. <laughs> but so, now, too, the I think yes, you write it down. But I think you made a very good point. You must or you should discuss this face to face with your kids. Um, that's one of the services that we offer. We often say to people, when we have all this done, and they're getting on in age. We say, look, why don't you bring the kids in? And uh, let's have a special meeting here in our office for the purpose of informing the kids roughly how much is in the estate and helping the kids understand what they're going to receive. Because I have to believe the kids are out there wondering, are mom and dad going to get sick and have to go to a nursing home? <laughs> yes. Am I going to have oh, to gosh, pay for yes. it? Yeah. You know, and I can't pay for it. Oh, my goodness. And So I think the kids knowing what the plan is and that mom and dad have prepared, I would think that would take stress away from the family and the children would be grateful. Now, some people say, no, I don't want my kids to know. I don't want to tell the kids. Well, what they're really telling you is, frankly, they did a poor job in parenting, I think. And they've raised kids that they can't talk to and that they can't explain these things to. And if you're one of the kids listening to this, snap out of it. Straighten up. Make it easy on your mom and dad to explain what's going on and encourage them to explain what's going on. They'll appreciate it. You'll appreciate it. And be generous. If, if, if mom and dad die and don't leave you a dime, and that's not going to happen probably, but if they die and don't leave you a dime, you're probably still going to be okay because you've got your career. You've got your resources. And what if mom and dad use all the money in, in nursing care or something like that? Then maybe they didn't leave you a dime anyway. So, so I'm saying to you, be generous with your parents and help the old folks to go through this process. 
because it will provide mental and emotional comfort to them to feel like they have explained to you what's mm -hmm. going to happen to the assets when you die. Absolutely. Now, upon your parents' death or your death, I guess I, I, I got my metaphors mixed up. I'm not sure which of the parties I'm talking to now. So upon your death for your own estate plan, there is a legal mechanism that, or, or I should say legal mechanisms are required in order to transfer the assets to your heirs. And depending on which mechanism you use, the transfer may have to go through something called probate. Well, probate is a legal process that happens down at the courthouse. It's public. And what happens when you die is a probate. It's called a probate estate. A probate estate is open. That's a file down at the courthouse. And on this file, they list all of your assets and all of your liabilities. And anybody who wants to, your next door neighbor nosy, mm -hmm. uh, can mm -hmm. go down to the courthouse and look at the probate record and see how much money you had in what bank and how much money you owed and to whom you owed it and who your beneficiaries are. And if you had anybody that you wanted to give some money to because you didn't, but you didn't want anybody else to know about it because it was your long lost love child, it's going to be in there. <laughs> um, so anyway, probate's public is what I want to say here. And in addition to that, not only is it public, but they put an ad in the newspaper that says, hey, everybody come look. Oh, wow. The ad in the newspaper announces that your estate is in probate and it invites anyone who wants to make a claim that you owed them some money when you died to make that claim known now. And this is where all the crazies may show up oh, yeah. and make assorted claims against your estate. Now, if you don't have a will, that's when the laws of intestate succession. How are we doing with our yeah, lawyer? Okay, there? we're doing okay. That's that's when the state rules about what happens if you don't have a will are going to kick in. And where the state says, here's what's going to happen to the money. And you recall in Missouri, after the first 20000 it's split 50-50 right. with the wife or the spouse and the children. So if you die intestate without a will, the state in which you live is going to enforce its will upon you through a person called the probate judge. And he'll issue orders from the court. It could be a she will issue orders from the court about what is to happen to your assets. But if you die with a will, a will still has to be probated. And this is an important point. People say, well, I've got all that taken care of. I don't have to have any problem with it. I, I, uh, I've got a will. Well, your will still has to go through probate. And mm -hmm. so the first thing that happens when you die is a probate estate is opened at the courthouse. And that list is made that I told you about, and all the neighbors can come and look at it. And the judge will read your will, and the neighbors can read it too. And he will enter it into the record, inviting anyone else to challenge it. You may recall when big stars die, sometimes all of their cousins come out of the woodwork. Well, you might want to think about who your cousins are and whether they'll come out of the woodwork. <laughs> and what all the cousins say is, oh, well, I know what, that's what the will says, but, but he really meant to leave me some. And you're like, dude, I haven't seen you since I was in seventh grade. <laughs> I didn't mean to leave you any. So the judge has to sort all this out and eventually he'll determine what you want and he'll issue an order to be carried out regarding how your assets are to be distributed. So the judge so, can actually reinterpret your will? Well, the judge interprets your will, yes. And you would think you would think that it says what it says, yeah. but we've learned with the governing documents of our country lately that even our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, it's being argued, don't really mean what they said. Mm -hmm. So if they don't mean what they said after 250 years, what are the chances that your will means what it says? It darn right better. Well, it's pretty simple, and that's one of the fundamental things, not only from a political philosophy standpoint, but just from the philosophy of your will. I wrote it down. It's plain yeah. English. English mean, The words mean what the words say, so do what I ask be done. 
but everybody gets to argue and the judge gets to decide. Wow. Now, if you go through probate and remember a will has to be probated, it takes an average of about 18 months for a will to go through probate and it can cost as much as 5% of the value of the estate. So if you die with a million dollars and send it all through probate, you could pay approximately $50,000 to the lawyer and the executor of the estate. Uh, But you don't have to pay it, Patrice, if you will plan differently, because you don't have to go through probate. Thank goodness. if, If you don't take care of it, that's what's going to happen. So you remember that I said there has to be a legal mechanism, and one of the legal mechanisms is probate, mm-hmm. and you either go to probate without a will or with a will. But if you want to direct the money in a different way, then you may want to use a different tool to get you there because probate is public and you want to avoid it. And so now I want to talk about the different tools that you might use to help you transfer your estate and keep your entire estate out of probate. And the first of those is what I'm going to call passing assets by contract. Passing assets by contract. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this is probably the easiest, simplest, most cost-effective way of transferring your estate. And it might be great for you. Here's the way it works. Patricia, you know how a life insurance policy has a beneficiary on it? Yes. Um, Well, that's an example of passing an asset by contract. Your contract with the insurance company says, upon my death, I want the insurance death benefit to be paid to my niece, Sally. Your IRA or your 401k accounts can have beneficiaries named upon them. That is an example of passing an asset by contract. And you'd have to check the laws in your state to make sure, but I'm I'm guessing they're pretty similar. In Missouri, your brokerage account can have a transfer on death provision added to the account that says, you know, when I die, uh, these are the beneficiaries who take over my account. And your bank accounts can have that. For some reason in banks, they call it pay on death instead of transfer (laughs) on death. Your car can have a transfer on death. And by the way, I'll just parenthetically say this. My daughter just yesterday dealt with this because she has a car that mom and I bought her as she graduated from college. And she now has moved to another state, Indiana. And yesterday she went to register her car in Indiana. Now in Missouri, her car is in her name, transfer on death to her mama's name. Okay. So if my daughter dies because she's not married, then the car would automatically become my wife's. Well, she went to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Indiana, and they said, uh, we've never seen this before. We don't know what this is. And so I've never heard then of she it said, before. Oh, you haven't? Well, okay. No, no. <laughs> well, guess what? The people at the Department of Motor Vehicles <laughs> in Indiana hadn't either. And they told her, uh, yeah, well, this is a Missouri thing. We don't do this in Indiana. Now, I've been doing this a long time. And I'm like, you know, that could be true. But I don't think so. Well, in about 10 keystrokes, I Googled the Department of Motor Vehicles in Indiana, and guess what? They have an entire page of their website dedicated to the topic of transfer on death and the fact that they will do it in Indiana. But the people who work at the front counter talking to people like my daughter who went in say, oh, we don't do that here. We can't do it. And so I've sent her back with a sheet uh, printed off from their own website that says, read this and do this. And I just hope that she'll push her way through and not have to pay extra to get it done. But sometimes you got to let them grow up and fight their own battles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I made sure she knew about it. So my point is, 
Uh, even the government agencies that are supposed to in, uh, enforce some of this stuff don't know the rules. And in fact, more and more, I'm finding in every area of life, people don't know the rules. And that's why you have to step up and know the rules and take care of things yourself. So you could have a transfer on death on your car. Here's something you could do on a piece of real estate in Missouri. Again, you'd have to check the laws in your state. You can execute what's called a beneficiary deed, and, and, and you deed your property to your children upon your death. And you have to file that in, in, down at the courthouse, record it is what they call that. Mm -hmm. And the kids don't own it until you die. But upon your death, then the kids have ownership of that property and they can sell it without any outside interference. So these are all examples, Patrice, of passing an asset by contract. And if your estate is simple and straightforward, there's just a house and a car and some financial assets to be given to two or three kids, and they're all on their feet and doing fine. This is a really simple, very inexpensive way to transfer assets to the next generation. That's wonderful. Well, it really is. And I really like that set of tools a whole lot. The lawyers don't like them as much because uh, you'll notice we did all that probably without lawyers. Might have used an attorney to actually prepare the deed, but that becomes a, a few hundred dollars item instead of a few thousand dollars item. And there are times, by the way, where uh, it's just not that simple. Um, we have to get the attorneys involved. And here's a place where we would. Let me give you some examples of that. Let's mm -hmm. say you're married and it's a second marriage and we have her kids, his kids, and our kid. Mm. And now let's say some of the kids are on their feet and they're doing fine. And other kids are really struggling. And let's say one of the parties came in with a whole lot of love, but not very much money. And the other party came into marriage with an equal amount of love, but a whole lot more money. Well, now there's this imbalance in the family and whose kid gets what. And then maybe some of those kids have made bad decisions. They've chosen bad mates. They've entered bad marriages. Maybe they aren't good with money. Or maybe it's none of that. Maybe you have simply a child uh, or grandchild who is developmentally delayed and won't be able to care for themselves as an adult. So these are examples of where you might want to use a trust. And there are more examples than this. This is just a, a beginning place. But you can see how complications cause you to have to write more stuff down. That's a Latin word, by the way. Write more stuff down. <laughs> Latin, the, the Latin word stuficus, okay? So <laughs> we're going to use a trust to deal with our stuficus. How are we doing? You think they're going to throw me off the radio for this, Patrice? And I say love it. The craziest, the craziest man on broadcasting. Keep on going. So let, let's understand what trusts are. So, first of all, trusts are confusing. They seem complicated, and they're really not, but I do this for a living, so it's not complicated to me. And sometimes lawyers use really big words, and trusts have lots of pages of documents. They annoy me, by the way. I think they're complicated when I start reading through them. They don't have to be that many pages and be that complicated, because a lot of times the trust actually addresses things that have no chance of ever happening. And so I'm all about simplifying it. Say it shorter. Make it less pages if you can. I did get a trust document one time that was one page and a half. <laughs> did it cover everything? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that it could be argued that it didn't. But the, the whole point is they had really economized words, and I appreciated it. So um, here is, here's what a trust is. First of all, a trust is a document. And when you sign that document as the trust maker... It becomes, now hang on to your hat a minute, it becomes a living person. Oh. 
you probably have created other living persons that were more fun to create than this, by the way, I'll just throw out. But, but this becomes a living person. So in law, it's called a non-natural person. So you and I, Patrice, yeah, well, hey, the lawyers do all this stuff. I'm just helping translate it. So, so in law, you and I, Patrice, are natural persons. So you're Patrice Sikora, a natural person. I'm so glad. But, <laughs> but the Patrice Sikora Trust is a non-natural person because it doesn't have flesh and bones like you and I do. It's really more of an entity. I like to think of it almost as like creating a company or something like mm-hmm. that. And the reasons trusts are effective is in part because they don't have to die. There are trusts in existence today in Europe that were established over a thousand years ago, and they have benefited multiple generations of the same family for a thousand years. That's called a dynastic trust. And so you will die at 70 or 80 or 90 years of age, but your trust can keep on living almost into perpetuity. Long after your funeral, the trust just keeps on functioning. So you can create a trust. Let's call it the John Doe Trust with John Doe as the trustee and Jane Doe, his wife, as the successor trustee, or they could be co-trustees. And you can even say in the trust that either one of them can sign for the trust and say what happens to trust assets, or you could say, no, both of them have to sign and agree. And upon both of their deaths, their children, Sally and Tom, become successor co-trustees. So you see how the the ownership of the items in the trust change to the trust, no longer you who own it, right? but you still control it because you are the trustee. You still control it. And ownership isn't the key. See, people who grew up like I did down here in the hills, they tend to think, oh, I bought it, I own it, and I'm going to hang on to it. No, you don't want to own anything. You want to control it (laughs) because control is where the power is. If you own it, it just buys you liability when people decide you to sue you mm. for something. But if you control it, that's where the power really is. So you're going to control your assets, but you're going to control them through the trust. And you do that by transferring your assets into the trust. Now, this is very important. If you write a trust and sign it, but you never fund it by transferring assets into the trust, you just wasted your paper. It's it's an empty shell. There's nothing inside sure. it. So once it's written, Then you open a new brokerage account in the name of your trust, and you take your stocks and bonds and investments out of their existing account, and you move them over into the trust account. Same thing at the bank. You open a new bank account in the name of the trust. You move your money from the old bank account into the new trust account. You can deed real estate into the trust if you wanted to. And you can name the trust as beneficiary of your life insurance or your IRA. Anything that passes by contract can be passed into the trust. And once they're in the trust, as I mentioned, you don't personally own them anymore. The trust owns them, but you control them in the trust. And the trust says that you are the beneficiary of the trust. So those assets can be used for anything you like. So you put you, your, wanna, you put the assets in and you can take them out just as easily? Yeah, yeah you're just, your checkbook now is going to be a trust checkbook. Now, most people, I advise them, don't put your trust on the checks. You know, the, the, the number on your checks can go to your trust account, but on the trust or on the checks, just have it say John and Mary Doe. Mm. 
up at the top because people don't need to know that you had a trust. That's not their business. That's In fact, one of the reasons we use trust is to protect and hide information from the public because the public doesn't have any right to know what's in a trust. And even when you die, see, because the trust didn't die, nothing happens wow. with those assets. So, so unlike probate where everything's public in the trust, nobody gets to see what's in the trust. Got it. So you're the beneficiary of the trust and you can use the assets for anything you like. And upon your death, your spouse and children can be named as trustees and as beneficiaries, and your kids can be the beneficiaries three generations from now. And the assets can typically use for what is referred to as health, education, maintenance, and welfare. Health, that's, education, maintenance, and welfare. That's everything. Now think about it a moment. Yeah, that's the whole yeah. point. That covers everything. Mm -hmm. So the reason that we might use a trust or a reason we might use a trust is to be able to exercise what I call control from the grave. Do you remember that child we were talking about, Patrice, who married poorly, is irresponsible at handling money? And maybe you don't want to die and give that child a million dollars because you know what will happen to the million dollars. Mm -hmm. Maybe instead you want to give them $3,000 per month as an allowance. You can establish that trust okay. so that it has a type of control in it. And you can say they only get $3,000 per month as an allowance if they are sober and they have graduated from college and they attend a Catholic church three Sundays out of four, and they vote Republican, or, you know, I mean, the point is you can right. put anything in there you want to say, to, to, to control from the grave uh, to some degree what your children do. Now, obviously, you want to be thoughtful about that because um, there are things that you don't want to exercise that much control over. But certainly, uh, like the sobriety thing. Uh, you could have that mm -hmm. in place and that if they are struggling to maintain sobriety, maybe that $3,000 a month needs to be used to pay for their um, their going to the dry out clinic mm -hmm. uh, to get, get help instead of, by the way, that would be health, education, maintenance and welfare yeah. instead of just giving them the money to buy more booze. So uh, the other thing that this really does is it helps you control what I would call outlaws. Because your child and their children, your grandchildren, will be beneficiaries of the trust, but the spouse that your child is married probably wouldn't be a beneficiary of the trust. So if a divorce comes down the road, your assets aren't exposed to the outlaw. Interesting. Now, trusts can also be used to avoid estate taxes. So right now, and I say right now because there's concern that the Biden administration is going to change this. They've said they're going to change this. The law says when you die, you can leave $11.7 million to your children and no estate tax will be due. And uh, so that covers most people. I always <laughs> chuckle, when, and I don't mean this meanly, but, you know, somebody comes in with a modest amount of money, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and they're all wrapped up about estate taxes. And it's like, well, and, and I know, at that point, I don't know how much money they have. We haven't talked about that yet. They just mentioned estate taxes. And I'm like, well, if you don't have more than $11.7 oh, wait, you're married. So if you don't have more than $23.4 then you're not going to have an estate tax problem. And here, these people, you know, they've got a few hundred thousand dollars. So it's like you don't have an issue. <laughs> so a lot of people are scrambling, trying to take care of estate taxes that they're not going to have to pay. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you won't pay death taxes, by the way. That's another topic. Death taxes are like the money in your IRA that has to have the tax paid on it before it's transferred to the next generation. That's a death tax. 
different than an estate tax. So there's something to be considered. So we have to parse this out carefully. Uh, we we got to talk that. about that in another one, another podcast. Yeah, that would be a good, yeah. good podcast. Maybe you ought to email me that, Patrice, and, and remind me to talk about the the uh, uh, the death, death tax. taxes sometimes in, instead of estate taxes. So here's the deal. You can leave $11.7 million to your children, no estate tax due. Uh, your spouse can leave $11.7 million to the children, no estate tax due. Together, you can leave $23.4 million, no estate tax due. Now, some states have a tax. I'm working a case right now in Massachusetts uh, where there is an estate estate tax on anything more than a million dollars. You have to pay a tax in Massachusetts. So your individual state will de determine what mm -hmm. that is. But we usually just deal with it federally. So let's say you've got $23.4 million together as a married couple. And let's say one spouse dies and leaves everything to their spouse. Now, the surviving spouse has $23.4 million. Well, how much are they allowed to pass on to the kids estate tax-free? Only $11.7 So now, the $11.7 from the spouse who died is going to be taxable when it goes to the kids at somewhere between 18 and 40%, depending on how much there really is. So ultimately, as much as $4.6 million could go to the federal government, all because you didn't do your planning correctly. Whoa. But if you use trust properly, here's what you do. You put your $11.7 million into your trust, and you put your spouse's $11.7 million into their trust. And you say, well, wait, I earned all the money, so the, she didn't really have any of the money. No, 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 no. It's all our money. And that's the way the law looks at it. So you put 11.7 in her trust, 11.7 in his trust, and each of you get to pass 11.7 million onto your heirs. So trusts can help to preserve your estate tax exemption. That is a huge preservation. It is. It is. And, and that's one of the significant reasons that we use trusts. Now, I want to shift here and talk about the people that you name in your estate planning documents. You must name your heirs to whom you want the money to go to and what percentages, and those are all called beneficiaries. And if you use a will, you have to use an executor. That's the person who you give authority to to settle things out. And the probate court will validate your ex executor or and say, yes, this is the person. Or executrix. Executrix. Yes. Yes. I guess that was a sexist comment, yes. wasn't it? Rather. I apologize. It's, it's How, not Latin. It's not Latin well, enough. there you go. If I'd only gotten into Latin, I'd have probably had the gender <laughs> correct. I'm, I apologize. By the way, I'm really confused these days between what the difference is between gender and sex. You know, I, if you're a male or female, is that your gender or is that your sex? I thought, I thought gender was your male or female and sex was something you do. I'm just so confused. <laughs> Let's go back and talk in Latin for a minute. So go for it. In a trust, you must name a trustee. An executor, an executrix in a will, but in a trust, you must name a trustee. And often that's a person or persons. And sometimes it will be a corporate entity like a trust company. And there's a reason that we sometimes use trust companies when the kids are not competent or the kids are not uh, can't get along and cooperate. In fact, I, I'll, I'll parenthetically say this. Sometimes I recommend a corporate trustee because there's often an opportunity for tension to be created between the kids as trustees. If we will name a corporate trustee, well, then the kids get to be mad, but they're mad at the corporate trustee. And the corporate trustee doesn't care if the kids are mad. <laughs> and so we that actually rallies the kids together. And the kids become on the same team while they fight that mean corporate trustee that's not giving <laughs> us our daddy's money. So then when you put your estate plan together, you also probably are going to get a financial power of attorney and a health care power of attorney. 
So you'll need to say who makes financial decisions for you when you're no longer capable, who makes healthcare decisions when you're no longer capable. And then there's one other thing that trusts sometimes do. And I just want to mention it because I know some attorneys are writing trusts these way, this way these days. They're putting together trusts that they call Medicaid proof. Now, these trusts are written to protect assets from the government if you go into a nursing home and have to depend on the state to pay your bill through Medicaid, the welfare program. That's not a bad thing, but we hope that none of our clients, certainly not those who have $23.4 million, by the way, are ever going to be dependent <laughs> on Medicaid because they have provided for their long-term care through a LERP plan, L-I-R-P. And we discussed that way back in episode 14, how to have more tax-free income. And again, in episode 21, where we talked about new ways to pay for long-term health care. So a Medicaid-proof trust is probably not necessary for those people, but those trusts are being written today. And I just wanted to throw out there that that's something that an attorney might introduce in the event you're having that conversation. So Patrice, great news. I'm listening. We're there. (laughs) <laughs> 30,000 feet of estate planning is theoretically all completed now, and hopefully you have an overview of what that looks like. Well, I'm I'm so glad you made it simple, and I'm so glad you did it in Latin, and it was really good. But if we need to get our estate plan in order, what should we do? Well, let me give you two or three ideas as we uh, kind of wrap up here. Uh, Number one, it's never bad to involve an attorney. In fact, some cases you definitely should involve an attorney. And you can find an estate planning attorney and employ them. And based on the prices that I'm aware of locally, you'll probably pay two to $5,000 for a complete set of estate planning documents. Now, beware that in many cases, they don't typically fund your trust. And so you're still going to have to do Mm -hmm. that on your own or pay someone like me to help you with that process. So there's the writing and then there's the funding, two different things that have to happen. A second alternative is you can pass everything by contract, assuming everything that you have is passable that way. So you would go to your financial advisor and they put a transfer on death on your brokerage accounts to make sure your IRA has a beneficiary in place. You go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, you put a TOD on your autos, you go to the bank and put a pay on death on your bank accounts. And then you or a capable friend or probably an attorney need to draft a beneficiary deed for your real estate and then be sure you record it down at the courthouse because if you don't record it, it didn't happen. How do, you, if how, you, do you have to go down and how do you do that? How do you? Well, in the state of Missouri, each county has a county recorder of deeds. Oh. And when real estate transfers from person A to person B, it transfers via a deed and that is recorded at the courthouse. So you can go to the courthouse and look up who owns any piece of property whether it's a natural person or a non-natural person, because if you owned it in a trust, mm-hmm. see? Mm-hmm. So, and it, oh, here's one. Right across the parking lot from my office, not, not 75 feet away, there is a building that is owned by the Unbeknown LLC. The Unbeknown LLC? <laughs> yeah. So, it. you know, my, 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 most of my stuff is owned in the J. Barry Watts LLC or the J. Barry Watts Trust or whatever. But it's, by the way, the building's owned by lawyers. But they didn't <laughs> want anybody to know. And so they named their LLC the Unbeknown LLC. So oh my gosh. The, the, I, I may do one one day that says uh, the LLC that nobody knows who owns it. <laughs> LLC. Then nobody knows who owns it. LLC. That would be great. <laughs> I like the idea. So, okay, I'm lost. We were trying to talk about a state plan. <laughs> if you don't have people in place, who do they go to? Oh, yeah. Well, so if you don't have play, you don't know how to do this, you can always come see us. Reach out to us at savingyoutaxes.com. 
Because we will help you with the second alternative of transferring things by contract. We can make sure that you have all the names right, the beneficiaries right. And hopefully, by the way, your financial advisor should be checking up on you annually and mm-hmm. making sure, going over who your beneficiaries are and, and making sure that the beneficiaries are still correct and this is still how you want it done. There hasn't been a new grandchild born or a new marriage or something like that. You haven't adopted a child. They should be going over all these things and making certain that your beneficiaries are still correct. Or there's a third alternative, and that is that you can have a trust, a backup will called a pour-over will, a power of attorney for health care, a power of attorney for finances, a health care directive, all prepared by an attorney, but through what is called a document preparation service. Now, this is a bit of a different structure. It first started with legal Zoom back in the day, oh. and it's moved a long way from there. But since attorneys aren't licensed in every state, they can't really be your attorney and give you legal advice. So what some of them got smart and started doing is they started just preparing documents, and they will send you the document, but you sign and say, I understand I'm not getting legal advice from them. They're just acting like a secretary and preparing a document for you. And in most cases, you still get everything you need and you wind up paying maybe 1500 bucks for that. So our clients who need trusts and who have chosen not to go directly to an attorney, we introduce them to a document preparation service, and then we help them with the paperwork to make sure they get everything properly transferred into the trust. But the actually, the attorneys through the document preparation mm-hmm. service actually wrote the trust. So Patrice. Yes, sir. I hope that today's show has been helpful and informative. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't, and everyone who listens to our podcast to get your estate planning completed. Call your attorney or do it yourself by reaching out to whoever manages your investments, your bank, go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, et cetera, and pass everything by contract. Or if that is still a little bit confusing, reach out to us by going to savingyoutaxes.com. And we'll help you determine the steps that you want to take and help you obtain the right documents so that your estate plan is in order. And that can all happen simply by going to www.savingyoutaxes.com where you'll find a phone number so you can call us or you can fill out a contact form and then we will call you. If today's podcast has been helpful, please go to your podcast listening app and click the share button. Uh, so that you can text or email this episode to a friend who might find it beneficial as well. Until the next episode of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement, I'm retirement designer and tax strategist Barry Watts. On behalf of SavingYouTaxes.com, reminding you that all you've accumulated throughout your lifetime may be frittered away if you don't get your estate planning done. I'll see you next time. This podcast has been for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied on as legal advice. Barry Watts is not a lawyer. He does not play one on TV, and he didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So for legal advice about planning your estate, consult your attorney. 